0: Well, welcome here again to Rotherham Evangelical Church. We're going to open our Bibles at this point to Genesis 37 and 38. Our talk this evening will be from Genesis 37 and 38. I'm glad you made it here. I know many of us were off in different places this weekend camping. Our family was down in London for the weekend, so it's good to see you. Genesis 37 and 38... uh, If uh, you don't know where that is, it's on page 41 and 42 in your Red Bible that's right in front of you. I encourage you to open that up because we're going to be reading from it. So you'll, uh, you'll be helped, and you'll understand this talk better if you open that up and read it with me when it comes time to read it. Page 41 and 42 in the Red Bible. Do something for me. Think back to the time when you were in secondary school. Or maybe college A-form, is that what you call it? A-form? Is that college? 16 to 18? Speak up! Sixth form, what an A-form. So think back to that time. For some of you, that's, you're gonna be reflecting on your own experience right now. For the others, that's gonna be, that's gonna feel like it's taking you out of modern history. Just kidding. But give it a try. (laughs) Think of that person who really drove you crazy. Perhaps, more seriously, who bullied you. Or who tattled on you and got you in loads of trouble. Maybe the person who made constantly made fun of you. Or who constantly just annoyed you. That person who never just got what they deserved, and it seemed like never, it never what they deserved never just came around to them. The person you ach- ached just got some justice in their life. Do you ever think about that person now, years later? Of course, you wouldn't admit this to anyone, but perhaps you wouldn't mind hearing a little bit of news that that person's behavior finally caught up with him or her. Oh, we all crave this kind of poetic justice, don't we? We love to hear the story of the popular, good-looking teenage bully who you see years later at maybe 40 or 45 and... They've just made a wreck of their life, playing video games in their parents' basement. While at the same time, the nerdy teenager who was made fun of is a success story. Good looks, beautiful family, living the dream. Something about that story just feels right. That's the kind of story that sells in Hollywood. And it feels right to us as well. But let's give you another scenario. The bully, the tattler, the person who hurt you deeply, the person who got away with everything, shows up years later and they're seemingly transformed. Perhaps in a position of influence or or even more in a position of spiritual leadership. Maybe initially you're skeptical. Not that person. I know that person. I know who he or she really is. They might fool everyone else, but they're not fooling me. I knew what he or she was like. People like that just don't change. Well, in our story today, we encounter two brothers, Joseph and Judah. They're, they're Jacob's sons, the patriarch. And in a unique way, the, the, the narrator portrays these two brothers as vastly different. But the, yet at the same time, they both play a major role in God's big plan of salvation and his big plan to bless everyone on earth. In this series, as, as we watch the video, we're covering the lives and families of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of their families, right? Right? Well, in the the first part of our series, Genesis 12 to 23, we, we learned all about Abraham and his family. And then the next part, we learned about Isaac and his family. Now we're in the final section of Genesis, Genesis 36 through 50, and we learn all about Jacob's family, his 12 sons. These will later be the 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes of Israel. But although Jacob and his twelve sons will show up through the, this is the story of Jacob and his twelve sons. Sorry, I think I this doesn't seem to be working. I'll need you to, I need you to, to click through uh, the next one for me. And the next one. <clears throat> although it's about his twelve sons, this thirty chapters thirty six through fifty really focuses on one son, Joseph next slide, out of 15 chapters, every chapter except one focuses on Joseph's life. And that's the one, one of those we'll be looking at today. As you see, the main character, you see a a, a thread there, Joseph, 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 Joseph. And there's one that says, Judah seems to be out of place, seems to be out of nowhere. So we have this amazing story about Joseph who was sold into slavery and how he miraculously became a ruler in the most powerful nation in the world and how he'll, he'll go to save his family from extinction and keep all the covenant promises of God to his people and to Israel and then he'll bless all nations. All that's happening throughout the rest of the, the book of Genesis. But just as this incredible story begins in chapters 36, you're immediately taken off the tracks. So it seems. You get this incredibly strange story about Judah and this Canaanite woman named Tamar. It seems totally out of place. And then the narrator jumps back into the Joseph narrative. You get the hero that we all want to see. So what's going on? Why get sidetracked with repulsive Judah Why not just stay focused on Joseph? After all, he's the character we should all emulate. He's the hero we all want to be. Well, let's explore these two brothers in Genesis 37 and 38 and see how they match up side by side. First point, Joseph, chapter 37, the favored son and the hated brother. Joseph, the favored son, and the hated brother. We're going to read Genesis 37 together. Page 41. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, that's Jacob, Loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him of his old age, and he made him an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. It could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn and out in the field, and when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and, and this time the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you have? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent them from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They moved on from here, and and the man answered, I, I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and, and take him back to his father when when Joseph come came sorry so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty, there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal they they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe into the blood. They took the ornate robe to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloths and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of the pharaoh's one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So after years of wandering, from place to place in Canaan. Jacob, this patriarch, finally settles back in Hebron, where he had, where he escaped from his family many years ago, escaped from Esau, if you remember that. And at the very start of the scene, Joseph, the 11th born son, he's only 17 years old. And there's immediately tension in the story. Joseph is out tending the sheep with some of his brothers, and he returns to his father with a bad report about them. The original language actually suggests that it's kind of a bad report with malicious intent. He's maligning them in some way. But the very next thing you read is that Jacob is loves Joseph more than his other sons. Whatever the reason for, for Jacob's favoritism here, it's a sign of trouble for those who have been reading through the book of Genesis. Jacob, of course, is already intimately aware how parental favoritism has ripped his own family apart. Remember how his father loved Esau more, and then his mother loved Jacob more, and how it brought a rift in the whole family, and they all ended up splitting apart. Apparently, Jacob didn't learn from his own parents' mistakes. Jacob then gives Joseph, this favorite son, an ornate coat of some kind, and of course, this made the brothers furious. He's the, one of the youngest. But it wasn't just that their dad had given Joseph, this, you know, tattler of a brother, some nice expensive coat. It's what the coat symbolized. Some scholars even suggest that this is a a royal robe. It's it's the same word is used in other royal settings. Perhaps one, one that symbolized Joseph stands as the firstborn with this coat on. After all, Reuben, who was the firstborn just got in massive trouble in the previous chapter because he slept with his father's concubine. And his his father just said, you're basically not the firstborn anymore. And so it may even suggest his brothers might see this as an act of showing this 11th born son, he is going to be the heir of my entire estate. And Joseph's brother's hatred increases more and more and more for him. Well, Joseph has two mysterious dreams in the next scene. Both dreams are about Joseph one day ruling over all of his brothers, and his brothers and mother and father all bowing down to him, even to the ground. In the second dream, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars all symbolize his father, mother, and eleven brothers. Bowing down in submission to Joseph. And maybe we see Joseph's immaturity a little bit here. It's one thing to get a dream from God. It's another thing, when you already know your brothers kind of hate you, to tell them they're all going to bow down to you one day. Maybe this is something you would think Joseph would keep to himself, but he doesn't. Even Joseph's dad, who, who favors him, is a, slightly annoyed. Do you think your mother and I are gonna and your brothers are actually going to bow down to you one day? But you can see the anger and jealousy of Joseph's brothers steadily growing and growing through the passage. Verse 2, Joseph maligns his brothers, and they're certainly not happy about that. Verse 3, Jacob gives Joseph a special cloak. And his brothers can't even speak a word to him, it says. Verse 5, Joseph has a dream and they all hate him for it. Verse 8, after telling them the dream, their anger deepens. Verse 11, after telling his brother the second dream, they're enraged with jealousy and anger. Just kind of the tension is climbing and climbing and climbing. And it all reaches a tipping point in verse 12 and following. Jacob's sons are shepherds. So they're grazing the sheep out and about. And they go to Shechem. And perhaps Jacob is worried about his sons going to graze in Shechem. If you remember last week, if you were here, Shechem is the place where Levi and Simeon had just got revenge for the rape of their sister. And they got revenge by killing almost all the Shechemite men. So their their father's perhaps a little bit worried. There's my sons go. I want to send Joseph out just to check on them and see how they're doing. So Joseph makes this 50-mile journey to Shechem, and then he gets there and he realizes they're not there, so he makes another 13-mile journey to Dothan. And when his brothers see him at a distance, they begin plotting to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they mock. Let's see what comes of his dreams now. And at this point, Reuben, who's the oldest brother, actually wants to save Joseph's life. But he doesn't have the courage and he doesn't have the leadership to actually oppose his brothers. So he wants to do it secretly. He says, let's just throw him in this pit over here, okay? And and, and when maybe a little bit later when they're all having a meal, I'll go in and rescue him. And I'll bring him back to my father. Even the commentators even suggest... Reuben might not have the purest of motivations here. After all, he's been taken away from the bo- his status as the firstborn. And if he thinks, maybe if I can get him back, bring Joseph back to my father, I'll be in his good graces, and I'll be considered the heir of my father's estate. So in verse 23, Joseph arrives. But instead of a familial greeting, his brothers strip off his royal robe. He's not not going to be the firstborn here. They throw him into a deep well that's been dried out from all its water. There in the middle of nowhere, Joseph is going to be left to die of exposure. He's got no clothes, and he's going to be left to die of thirst. He has no water. And then verse 25 provides a horrifying transition. The brothers casually sit down for a family meal while their brother screaming for his life in a pit nearby. One writer notes, little do these brothers know their next meal in Joseph's presence will be with Joseph at the head of the table. At this point, Judah, who will be the main character in the next chapter, sees some traitors coming from Midian. Midianites or Ishmaelites, same, same, basically the same group, okay? And he sees them and he says, you know what, I'm a bit greedy. Why not get a few extra quid? We'll, we'll get our brother away, but why kill him when we can actually gain from killing him? So the, the brothers agree. Reuben is off doing something else. They quickly pull jo- Ju- Joseph out of the pit, only to sell him into slavery. And later Reuben returns and he realizes the brother's gone, my chance of getting in my father's good graces are absolutely gone. And he's horrified. But Reuben's grieving only lasts a very short time. They immediately begin conspiring how to deceive their father about his favorite son. So in the next scene, the brothers kill a goat. They take Joseph's robe and dip it in the goat's blood. And when they return to their father, they said, look, look what we found. Examine it is this not our brother's coat? They even distance themselves from Joseph saying, your son, not not our brother, your son's coat. Oh, how Jacob's deception of his father has returned to haunt him. Jacob himself, by slaughtering a goat, by stealing his brother's clothes, and now Jacob's son's, are deceiving him, also by slaughtering a goat and with their brothers' clothes. But the narrative ends with an intriguing note. Meanwhile, it says, verse forty-two, uh, in the last verse of the chapter thirty-seven. Joseph, this favored son who is viciously sold into slavery and oppressed by his brothers, while this is all happening, meanwhile he finds himself in Egypt. Sold as a slave, but in a very prominent household. And there's just a note of, the story's not over for Joseph. This is not where his story will end. Well, this is one dysfunctional family, I'd say. And what more, what's more shocking is that this is God's chosen family. This is the family that God would, would use to make his whole plan of salvation come through. That he would use this family to bless all other families, to bless all other nations. Can you imagine the royal family acting like this? This is more like uh, the Tudor family in the 16th century, isn't it? In this story, Joseph has been mocked, oppressed, left for dead, sold into slavery. And if you know the rest of Genesis, you're aware that Joseph will become a hero a hero that saves the very brothers who've tried to kill him and actually forgives them. Joseph, even throughout these horrific decisions, God will masterfully weave this into a story of grace and redemption and forgiveness, and Joseph will be at the center of God's plan. But for now, he's a slave in a foreign country as good as dead to the rest of his family. And it's at this point that the narrator takes a detour from Joseph's life. He'll return back to Joseph in chapter 39, but the camera moves away from Joseph just briefly to look at his brother Judah, the one responsible for selling him into slavery. Let's read chapter 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son named Onan and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up an offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to avoid providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. Judah Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his other brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. Then Judah recovered from his grief, and he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hira, the Adullamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance of Anayam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though, Sh- though Shelah had, not gr- had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was the, his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord, the staff in your hand, she answered. So he, so he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes skin. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, Where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Aniam? There hasn't been a shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, There hasn't been a shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock after all. I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shela," And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. and So, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it around its wrist and said, this one came out first. But then he drew his hand back. His brother came out, and she said, "So this is how you have broken out." And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out after, and he was named Zerah. Next slide. What in the world did we just read? (laughs) You're probably thinking that looks a little bit strange, and I understand. Genesis 38, Judah, the corrupt son and father, transformed by grace. It is a strange story, but I think we have to reflect on it a little bit and see kind of what's going on in the context, and I think it can illuminate what's happening. This story encompasses about 22 years in chapter 38. Soon after Judah returned home, remember, with the horrible news about his brother Joseph, he goes on and leaves the family, and he goes on somewhere else in Canaan. There he moves in with his Canaanite buddy named Hira. And then Judah marries a Canaanite woman, which, if you remember, is the thing that Abraham and Isaac had told their sons not to do above all things because it was a sign that they were abandoning the covenant with their Lord. They were abandoning God's plan to bless all the nations. And they were intermingling with kind of the pagan culture. So he abandons his family, forsakes his father, and he has three sons by this Canaanite woman, and it's Ur, the eldest, Onan, and Shelah. So verse 6, we fast forward about 18 years, and Judah finds his son, Ur, a wife named Tamar. Once again, she's a Canaanite. But Judah's sons are no better than their father. Ur is wicked, and God strikes him dead, leaving Tamar to be a, a childless widow. And it's at this point where this story begins to really sound strange to us. That's because there's an ancient law in the background, okay, that's kind of providing the impetus for the rest of the story. Both in the ancient Near East and the Old Testament, there was a law that stated when when two brothers lived together, if one of them dies without an heir, the surviving brother is to marry the widow and provide his now-dead brother with a child, an heir. And there was two reasons for this law. First, it protected the widow by giving her a son, an heir, and a future kind of livelihood. There wasn't uh, advanced retirement income in those days, and there wasn't— your child was your security plan, okay? It was your uh, 401—I was just about to use an American term— but it was your 401k, it was your retirement, Okay? And so, on the one hand, it protected the widow. On the other, it also honored the deceased brother, since his name would continue through his brother's child. In fact, if, if a brother did not do this duty towards his widow, he was considered an absolute disgrace. Read, read Deuteronomy 25. So Judah instructs Onan to fulfill his duty to Ur's brother. So Onan, the secondborn actually makes the situation worse at this point. He sleeps with Tamar, getting kind of the sexual pleasure from Tamar, but then, in all its explicit detail, he intentionally pulls out from her to avoid impregnating her. You see, Onan knows that if he provides her with an heir, he'll lose half of his father's inheritance. He's greedy, just like his father was with with Joseph, and he doesn't want to protect Tamar, and he doesn't want to honor his brother. So the Lord puts him to death as well. It's like the only two times this happens. At this point, Judah, what he should do is offer Tamar protection and accommodation. And when his son, youngest son, Shela is old enough, Judah should rightly give him to Tamar. But he doesn't. He neglects his responsibility to Tamar, and he sends her back to her parents. He, pr- he promises to give her his youngest son, Shelah, but in reality, he has no intention of doing so. So a couple more years pass when we get to verse 12. Judah's wife has now died, and Shelah is now old enough to be given in marriage. But Tamar realizes Judah has no intention of giving me Shelah. So she's left without a security plan and without... A, a, a son for her deceased husband, and she devises a plan to get an heir for herself and her late husband. She knows that Judah is going up to Timah to shear his sheep, and, and she knows now as, as a widower he's slightly sexually vulnerable, so she disguises herself with a veil and pretends to be a prostitute at the city gate. Judah, thinking she's just a common prostitute, unknowingly sleeps with his daughter I'm Before this as- happens, she asks him for a pledge. She says, Okay, I want some guarantee that you're gonna pay up. Okay, this is all part of her plan, right? She says, I want your seal and the cord and, and the and the rod that, that you're you're using. And you have to understand, the seal is a metal stamp that only that had Judah's imprint on it. Like when he when he gave some mail and he you put some wax seal down and you, he put a stamp on it and say, This is from Judah. It's an identity marker, it's his passport, okay? So he gives her his passport as kind of collateral if he doesn't send this goat. Well, anyways, he goes home. She goes home as well, returns in her widow's clothes, and she gets pregnant. Judah returns home, and then his friend goes up to pay, and, and he realizes there's no one there. And they even say, there's been, there's been no shrine prostitute here. We have no idea what you're talking about. He's slightly embarrassed, but, you know, water under a bridge, whatever. I won't get my passport back. I'll have to get a new one. Fast forward again three months. Tamar is now showing from her pregnancy. And someone reports to Judah that Tamar is guilty of prostitution. She's pregnant. And Judah immediately responds, callous, harsh. Bring her out and have her, have her be burned to death. The cold, rash response of Judah proves he's not interested in hearing all the circumstances or the evidence. He's certainly not interested in showing mercy. He's ruthless. And even more, he's hypocritical because he's done the very same thing, hasn't he? But Tamar has planned for this moment. And as she is being brought out to execution, you can feel the tension growing. She sends a message to Judah. I am pregnant by the man who owns these items. And there before him, Judah sees his own seal, his own cord, and stuff. It's the climactic point of the narrative. What's he going to do? Will he bury the evidence? Hide from embarrassment? Call her a liar and get rid of her? Or will he repent? In verse 26, Judah recognizes his guilt and declares, She is the righteous one, not me. Because I didn't give my son to her. This moment is a massive turning point in Judah's life. Let's think about it. Up to this point, Judah has been a jealous brother. He's been a slave trader. He's abandoned his family. He's abandoned his covenant by marrying a Canaanite. He's raised wicked sons. He's neglected his responsibility for his daughter-in-law. He deceived her by not giving her Shalah. He was ruthless in giving her the, the, the death penalty and hypocritical for doing the exact same thing. How do I know this is a turning point for Judah? Well, first, he admits his guilt and vindicates Tamar. He doesn't sleep with her again, the text says. But in later in the book of Genesis, we encounter a very, very different Judah. Later, he will return to his family. And although he is still an effective leader, like he always has been, he is now caring and self-sacrificing. The same Judah who oppressed his brother and deceived his father, in chapter, two, in chapter 42, promises his father that he will personally protect Benjamin on this trip to Egypt. His youngest brother. In chapter 44, when, when Benjamin, the youngest brother, is charged with theft, and is going to be put in prison in an Egyptian prison for the rest of his life. He looks at Joseph, who he thinks of is just an Egyptian, uh, Egyptian politician, and he looks at him and says, "I'll sell myself into slavery. Just let Benjamin go back to my father. He won't be able to take it." Then the same Judah that abandoned his family in chapter forty-six becomes the protector of his family by leading them safely into into Egypt in Genesis 48. And in a shocking turn of events, when Jacob is on his deathbed giving all the blessings to his sons, it's Judah, not Joseph, who receives the ultimate blessing of kingship. Look at the screen, next next one, and read Jacob's blessing to Judah. Judah. In chapter 49, verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you, and your hand will be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's sons will bow down to you. Wait, 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 that's wrong. The brothers will bow down to Joseph. We already read that in the previous narrative, right? What is Jacob talking about? The brothers, including Judah, will go down to Joseph in Egypt in a short while. That's true. But God in these pages is working out both a short-term plan and a long-term plan. In the short term, righteous Joseph is going to save his family from extinction. He's going to become the ruler in Egypt. But God's long-term plan of salvation will involve not Joseph, but Judah. Judah. Judah and the son born to him by Tamar in these horrific circumstances will continue the kingly line of Israel. The future Messiah, the future Savior, Jesus, will come from Judah and this illegitimate son. To return back to the narrative quickly, there is one more scene. Tamar's released. She's vindicated by the evidence. And and a few months later, she she has these twin boys. And just like Jacob and Esau had wrestled together in the womb, these two boys have a tussle kind of coming out. The one boy, Zerah, put his hand out first. And as was the custom with twins, it's all about the firstborn, right? They tie a little string around him, say, identify him as the firstborn. And then the text says, the other one kind of broke out did a little cheeky move on him and got out first, and they named him Perez, the one who broke out. The birth resembles Jacob and Esau's, where the younger Jacob would overtake Esau as the one God chooses to continue his plan. But Tamar, a Canaanite woman, by her loyalty to her deceased husband, saves the messianic line from extinction. Later in the New Testament, she will be in a long list of non-Israelite women who, through their loyalty to God's people, preserve and continue the line of the future Messiah. Next slide. There are three characters in this story that emerge and converge into the unlikeliest of heroes. Joseph, on the one hand, is perhaps the most likely of the three heroes, the one we kind of naturally appreciate, don't we? Although he's the youngest and starts about a bit immature, and he has this kind of rags-to-riches story, he loves his brothers and he innocently suffers at their hands. And yet the story goes on and he forgives them and he's this beautiful leader to emulate. And then you have Tamar. Even more, she is a surprising hero. She's an outsider, not part of the family. In fact, the very act of marrying her was disobedience. But she is unswervingly loyal to her family, such that she puts her own life on the line to provide a son for her husband and for Judah. But I I do think the unlikeliest of heroes in this story is Judah himself. Judah is corrupt through and through. He's an oppressor. He's ruthless. He doesn't keep his word. He abandons his family when they need him most. Yet God chooses him. And more importantly, God transforms him to be the leader of God's people. This story of Judah, it cuts against the cultural fabric of the day, doesn't it? You would almost never find a story like this come out of Hollywood. Sure, we like this, like when the story uh, of the hero of a story arises from an unlikely place, a difficult place, circumstances, you know, rags to riches. We like that story, we understand it. But for most of us, we're not quite as attracted to the hero who arises out of moral corruption and moral oppression. We have an intense desire, and in one sense a right one, that corrupt people, oppressors, get their due. But you want to know why you won't see a story like this in popular television? The secular world doesn't really have a category for genuine transformation. A morally corrupt person, through and through, transforming into a vessel of grace and mercy. Maybe the closest thing the secular world can offer is a character who, who at his core is good... But when thrust into impossible circumstances, through through an unfortunate series of events, really makes shipwreck of his life. And then the redemption is not so much a transformation in character as much as it is, it is just kind of finding the inner good within him that's already there. But a story where a character is nothing but evil, corrupt, oppressor, transforming into a humble confessor of his sin, a sacrificial leader, a courageous king. It just sounds implausible. And you know what? If you don't believe in the God of the Bible, it it is impossible. The New Testament teaches that each of us are born dead in our sins. Helplessly corrupt at our core, not helplessly good at our core. Lovers of self, naturally, not lovers of others, naturally. Certainly not lovers of God. But the Bible tells us that the only path to genuine transformation is not just a natural change, one that maybe a psychologist or a psychiatrist can make, but that what we need at our core is a supernatural change. Something from without side of us To transform us, not just our behavior, but who we are at our core. The kind of person we are. And the message of Christianity is clear. It's not a select few who are really corrupt that need transformation. It's everyone. You and me. And what the Spirit of God provides is not simply, again, simply transformed behavior, but a whole new person who has different desires, not just different behavior. Why do you think God goes through all this trouble? To transform Judah and make him and his sons these kingly leaders of God's people. After all, Joseph seems like the more natural choice, doesn't he? to carry on this line? He's kind. He's innocent. He shows himself to be brave and courageous, patient, forgiving, a strong leader. That's who Joseph is for the rest of the story. Why go through all the work of transforming Judah into the hero of the story? Why? I think this is why. God makes himself look more glorious And his plan of salvation look more beautiful by transforming the vilest of characters into trophies of grace. When a prostitute sits at the feet of Jesus in Luke 7, weeping over her sin, worshiping Jesus. Jesus said to the Pharisees there, her many, many sins have been forgiven. As her great love has shown, but whomever has been forgiven a little, loves little. What makes God look beautiful? What makes him look powerful and glorious and all satisfying? He transforms the vile Judas of this world and makes them into trophies of grace. This is where the text here speaks directly to us. The unexpected, transforming grace of God, okay, is so earth-shattering because, one, God does it, not you. That's what makes him look good. It's not just your effort. It's God who can do it. But also, this transforming grace goes to anyone. Regardless of rank, regardless of social status, regardless of gender, or how much skill you have, or your morality, or your past behavior, or your status. What pre-qualification do you need for this kind of transforming grace? You need to be a living, breathing human. That's it. Pretty sure, positive, every person in this room qualifies as that. You see, the, the transforming grace of God allows anyone and everyone to pursue their ultimate purpose and meaning in life. Listen, our, our past decisions all affect us, right? I would love to be, I love the game of baseball. I know none of you do, but I do. I would have loved to be a professional baseball player, but there are certain limits I have. I'm 5'10, a measly height. Uh, Now I'm a little fat, so I can't run the bases quite as quick. Uh, I made some poor decisions when I was younger. I didn't work quite as hard enough, and I didn't make it past the university baseball. I would love to be a professional baseball player, but quite frankly, I can't do that. And if that was my meaning in life, I just cannot fulfill my meaning in life. But in many other ways, the decisions we've made affects what we can and cannot do. Some of you want to be an accountant, but quite frankly, if you've never gone to school, it's going to be very hard to do that. Some of you may want to be this or that. And if that's where your meaning and purpose is in life, then you might not be able to fulfill that. But this is the beauty of God's transforming grace. When he gives it, and he gives it to anyone, that person, no matter where they came from, who they are, what they have done can fulfill their ultimate purpose and meaning in life because God has said we were created to bring Christ's glory and make him look beauty, beautiful by reflecting him, okay? God has done that to murderers, abusers, the abused, to liars, to prostitutes. To cheats, to the self-righteous, to the prideful, when he sends his transforming grace, it makes you immediately allowed to pursue reflecting his glory, and you can live with the ultimate meaning in life. In fact, in God's mysterious wisdom, it's actually the ones who God transforms transforms from absolute brokenness and moral bankruptcy that have the capability of glorifying him most. So if you're in here reading Judah, and at first perhaps not very appetizing, he's he's not a he's not one of these delicious characters we like to emulate and 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 identify with. Certainly emulate Joseph. But in this story We don't identify with Joseph. We identify with Judah. And the only way to come to God is to be one who's broken enough to be needed, to need, to transform, be transformed by his grace. Let's pray. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein. And sinners plunged beneath that flood Lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Lord, I pray that you would do that to us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.